This is the Church Security Made Simple podcast, giving leaders practical solutions to help make your community safer. I'm your host, Simon Osmo, and I'm on a mission to keep his churches safe. Now, it's been over 10 years since the Lord called me into security ministry, and as a national church safety practitioner supporting churches across the country, I'll share my expertise to give you simple solutions to keep your church safe. So if you're ready to make your church security simple, come join me and let's dive into this week's episode as we learn how to plan, prepare and protect our ministries. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of the Church Security Made Simple Podcast. I want to start off by saying thank you for all those people that rated and reviewed Season 1. It means so much to me and it allows other people to see that this show adds value and it really helps you in your role as church safety and security leaders. And a quick reminder, if you haven't already, uh, within the show notes, click the link to receive my free church security playbook it covers emergency preparedness, policies and procedures, child safety, training, extracts from my book, Securing Church Operations, and so much more. I'd love for you to take advantage of that today. Just click the link in the show notes to be given that free copy. Now today, we have a very heavy subject and we're discussing domestic violence. But the good news on this subject is that I'm talking to a national expert in the field. I'm talking with Hannah Sorvik Fordyce. Now, Hannah is a writer, an advocate with a passion for ending domestic violence. She's developed the House of Faith and Freedom program to help equip the local church to prayfully and effectively deal with domestic violence situations in their congregation and the surrounding community. Now, Hannah has a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in human services forensic behavioral health um, from Concordia University here in St. Paul, Minnesota. Now, it was an incredibly powerful conversation and there's so much that the church can learn around domestic violence. So without further ado, let's just dive straight into this week's conversation with Hannah Sorvik Fordyce discussing domestic violence within the church. Well, Hannah, thank you for joining me for this conversation. I know domestic violence, uh, my sister herself was a victim of domestic violence in England, and she spent a lot of time, similar to you, advocating for the victim rights. So I know that in a house of worship, there's so much risk, um, so much human brokenness. Um, Domestic violence is present, and it's going to be great to have this conversation with you. So thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, and Hannah, let's start off a little bit about your authority on domestic violence. How did you get into the field of being a sort of victim advocacy? Yeah, I, I went about it in kind of an odd way. Um, I went to school for psychology. And while I was under um, finishing up my undergrad in psychology, um, I did an internship with a domestic violence agency. And while I was there, I was so shocked by the number of victims that were in my community that I had never seen, had never known about, had never heard about. And then hearing their stories individually was really powerful for me. One in particular that really stood out was a woman who had been just severely beaten by her spouse and then kicked down the stairs. She had ended up in the ICU um, for several weeks and there was a domestic abuse, no contact, put in order by the courts. And she decided to petition to drop that no contact order and return home. So before she could do that in the city we lived in, the judge required that she went to the local agency, domestic violence agency, and filled out a 
safety plan. And I just so happened to be the advocate on. So as I was sitting across from her asking why it was that she was looking to drop the no contact order, her answer was because God would want me to return to my husband. And I was so unprepared in that moment to hear that someone would think that God would want them to return to the person who just tried to murder them. And that was the first really eye-opening instance of realizing like, oh man, there are people who have been told by the church that violence is okay and have been guilted into staying in dangerous positions under the name of God. And after that, it was actually pretty shortly after that, um, our church, my dad was a pastor, just so happened to have uh, a woman come in who my mom worked in radio. So she'd heard my mom in radio, came to their church and found my mom and just told her her story. And she had just recently fled an extremely violent relationship with her kids. And we ended up walking that journey with her through multiple criminal cases, through um, civil cases, protection orders, termination of parental rights. And it was years and years and years of court cases and trauma and mental and emotional healing and spiritual healing. And um, after walking through that with someone, I think it's really hard for you to walk away. Like you don't you don't stop caring. And so uh, after that, I decided to get my master's degree in something called human services, forensic behavioral health, which is a ridiculous mouthful, but essentially is just the intersection between mental health and the law. And then my thesis focused on um, system failures in cases of childhood sexual abuse. And so after that, I uh, worked in a couple of domestic violence agencies, ran a 24 hour crisis line, did victim advocate trainings. And over and over through those programs, I just kept seeing that first woman and I kept hearing her story. And it was echoed in all of these other stories of these women who had been just really hurt by the local church because of the things they had been told, because they had been disbelieved. And I just felt like I needed to do something more about it. And that was what led me into my current work, which is my organization, House of Faith and Freedom. And we provide domestic violence trainings for local churches. That's great. I mean, there, there is your authority, Hannah. I like it if people listen to us. And what you see and come across is very similar to me in safety and security. But the, there's, there used to be five things that I say that uh, reason why security fails in a church. I think I'm now up to seven and I, I hope and pray that this doesn't get longer. But the first is always the denial of danger. Mm -hmm. And so I relate a lot to your story there that um, people will be victims of domestic violence and people in the church are encouraging them to go back into those situations. And obviously, our conversation isn't to sort of pass judgment on people's lives, but when there is a real risk of violence and that violence can lead to serious injury, namely death, I mean, we do have to look wider than our faith as to what we're advising that person to do. So really excited to get into this conversation. Interestingly, I saw on your LinkedIn, there was an article about my homeland on there, actually. I, I can't remember when you posted it, but I read it. It was about United Kingdom and Wales. And it was talking about, and this statistic didn't surprise me, but it said 75% of UK cases of domestic violence are, are dropped by the sort of the, the perceived victim. I'm assuming with us being in the US, that it's most probably very similar statistics for a lot of domestic violence cases don't go into the criminal justice system? Absolutely. A lot of them don't go into the criminal justice system. Domestic violence is fairly hard to prove. So unless it was something where law enforcement was directly called to it and there are visible injuries or they can see that there's a lot of aggression going on between the partners when they get there, it can be a really challenging case to prove um, and, and to actually get a charge out of or unless the defendant decides to plead down. But 
That gets even messier when you get into things like child abuse. That gets really, really hairy, super fast. Um, child abuse cases are actually nearly impossible to push through um, unless they're, again, very visible and there's obvious injuries. It's it's challenging because in the U.S. we require the the perpetrator has the right to face the victim, right? And so the you need to have that first person testimony. And with kids, they're unreliable in testifying, especially when they're in a traumatizing situation, talking about something that's traumatizing. So anyway, that was actually part of my thesis was talking about how hard it is to get those cases pushed through because of the way that our justice system is set up. And that makes it really challenging for victims because to them, the law doesn't feel like it's offering that much protection. And to some degree, they're right, because we can't really do anything until there's a lot of evidence, which namely means in physical harm or intense terroristic threats that are provable. And I like something that you said to me, I think it's when we last met, about churches supporting victims as stepping into a line of fire. And, and I've got some great personal testimony uh, sort of about um, domestic violence. And you said that leaving is the most dangerous part. So I'd love to get your, I'm thinking about a church leader that could be listening to this podcast. I'd love for you to sort of try and explain that from your experience as to how is the church stepping into the line of fire by supporting victims of domestic violence? Because within a church, we want to help those people that are in these circumstances, but there's also a strong element of risk that comes with it. Absolutely. I think this is the interesting part where your work and my work really intersect, um, is that when you decide to become a church that is advocating, and especially a church that's openly advocating, you're aligning yourself with that victim as someone who's a protection. You're coming alongside of them, and you're also simultaneously holding the perpetrator accountable, especially if they're a member of the church. Because of that, you're putting yourself in front of a victim, which in a lot of ways is what advocacy is. It's stepping in for somebody, right? It's what Jesus did for us, literally stepping in in front of us. That also means that you now are in front of them when a perpetrator is trying to get to them or when an abuser is. And I think there's an interesting that there's obviously the reality that leaving is the most dangerous point in the relationship. And also there isn't that much of a statistical difference between uh, reoccurrences of physical abuse before or after the victim has left when we're talking about roughly like a six month period on either side. It's still really dangerous for the victim even after they've left because you're you're running that risk of an abuser who's really angry that someone has left the relationship. I know I said this to you offline, and I think I will share this story because it's very, very sort of um, relevant, non-church related. But when I was a police officer in England, I think I was 21, 22, you know, it's um, uh, in recent years, it's been a story that I've started to share, but I haven't always shared it. But a woman died in my arms. And uh, the backstory was that she was Iranian. She moved to the United Kingdom. Uh, in Iran, her husband was everything, um, and she was the sort of subservient woman. And then when they moved to the UK, I believe she became uh, a nurse. Uh, she was everything, and her husband lost a lot of his identity because it's more <laughs> England's a more how can I say this in a politically correct way? Um, we're more understanding to to maybe what women's rights are than what some of the Middle East countries are. Maybe I can say it in that way. And and he lost a lot of his identity, and I believe it started to give him a lot of uh, mental illness and. Uh, domestic violence followed. Uh, and we used to go around there quite regularly. And I can remember saying to my partner one time, I don't think, and I was 21, 22 when this happened. I can remember saying to my partner that uh, I don't think this is going to end well. And then it was two weeks later that um, I got the call to go around there. I was first on scene and basically she died in my arms because he had attacked her uh, and, and killed her. Um, so the 
the sort of leaving is the most dangerous part. You know, I, I get goosebumps even recounting this story now. You know, leaving is the most dangerous part um, is very true. But, you know, at that point when someone makes a decision that I want to leave this relationship, they are very vulnerable to that sort of final attack. So I guess I'd love to get some experience from you or words of wisdom. What should a church be doing? I mean, what can a church do other than the sort of the compassion and the community? What can a church be doing to help themselves manage some of the risk of the situations they're putting themselves in. Maybe there isn't anything, Hannah, but I'd love to get your sort of insight there. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's, it's a, there's probably multiple things to, to consider and go about. Um, I often talk about how you need to help, you have a duty to help as a church to help the victim if they're someone that you've been supporting to achieve safety. And that's often through something like a safety plan, through connecting them to resources, in the community, like local domestic violence agencies or helping them to go report to law enforcement if they need to, understanding what kind of civil protections there are, like orders for protection or harassment restraining orders. These kinds of things can help a victim achieve safety, safety plans, walking them through sort of the practical things to think through. And for churches, there's something similar. And a lot of that is having a security team that's set up so that your church at least has those protections. There's someone there who's aware, who's paying attention to threats, who's trained in it, who understands de-escalation. And, and I also think having camera systems set up in your parking lots, in your building, knowing your secure point of entry, doing check-in and check-outs for children's ministry when there could be custody issues, making sure you're asking the right questions around protection orders, around custody orders, and really just understanding that the risk is real. Because I think one of the greatest dangers is being naive and thinking that there is no risk because then you're just opening yourself up to something happening. But when you're prepared, you can at least be maybe more ready. If something did go wrong, you have the steps in place to try to manage that risk. And I love what you said there when you said about asking the right questions, because I think, again, this is where your world in domestic violence and minor safety and security sort of interject is that we we're talking to the same type of people. And there can be a stigma that people come to me and say, well, Simon, am I going against my faith if I'm going to ask Hannah about her sort of, you know, her past or her history? Or is it very community to be asking these questions? Well, that stigma stigma needs to be removed because we're talking about keeping people safe. You know, you can't serve that person and help them if you don't fully understand the situation that they're in. So I really like what you said there about it is asking the right questions. And for the leaders listening to this is, is being brave to ask those questions, you know, by by shying away or not asking, you know, Simone, do you have a non-contact order against your ex-partner? You know, what, what, what does this mean for you? I think it's, um, that is one best way to manage risk is to understand what risk you actually have. You know, you've got to do your, your assessment of what risks are out there, there first. Well, and I think too, you have to, when you ask those questions, you're both acting as a protector for the vulnerable, which is something the Bible repeatedly tells us to do. And you're also holding accountable someone who there's there's a reason a no contact order is put in place, right? It's it's okay to hold people accountable. It's a necessity in the church as part of being a part of a community. So I don't think that's a those are prying questions. You can respect people's privacy, especially, you know, victims often won't want you to confront or talk to their abuser, even if they're in the church, because it feels like that's a safety risk for them. And it's important to honor that and to honor their confidentiality. But you can do that in a way that's still going to give your security team a heads up, right? Even if you don't give them specifics, you can say someone in the church does have a no contact order. 
here's the name, or if they're not comfortable with the name or if they're not comfortable with that situation being shared, you can just say, be extra prepared. Make sure you're paying attention today. Do extra rounds outside. Make sure you're watching over the kids area. You know, those types of things, even though they're not specific, they're still going to give your security team enough of a heads up that they're they're more prepared, so they're not going to get caught off guard. And I like that about preparedness, because I was my mind was thinking that most of the people that work on a safety team happen to be uh, sort of male. And um, I was thinking, is there, um, there, there might be, and again, I don't want to put too much more prejudice in there, but you know, the males tend to sort of rise up on these occasions, the, the, the chest goes out and I become the protector, you know, that sort of the sheepdog, if you like. Uh, what advice would you give them about when they're in this circumstance? Obviously, you said, you know, it's not go and confront Simon, um, it's listen, you know, maybe have empathy, but is there any advice that you would give to safety team members? And maybe we we'll primarily address men right now because statistically that's what a lot of them are. What, what should they be doing if they find themselves in a situation talking to a woman who's disclosed that she's got, she's suffering from domestic abuse, domestic violence? I think the first thing is just to listen. I mean, if they're telling you that they're being abused or disclosing that in the past they have been or that they feel unsafe, They've chosen you as someone who does appear safe. So just take the time, listen to what they're saying, and then I would wait for an opening to gently lead them towards a leader or an advocate or someone that you know is trained in the church to deal with domestic violence. And um, and just say, is it okay? Is it okay if I lead you over to this person and you can talk more with them and they can maybe plug you into some support systems? And then I always think too just infusing that consent as much as you can, whether that's asking if you can lead them to a pastor or to an advocate or infusing the consent to be like, is there something that you feel unsafe about right now? You know, if they're going up to a security team member, there's a good chance it's because they're feeling strongly unsafe in that moment. You know, so saying, are you okay? Do you need help? Do you need me to call 911? Do you, you know, what would make you feel safe in this moment? How can we come around you? How can we support you? And that's a key piece in any ministry, but in particular in security ministry is I love the way you said that infused consent, make sure you're always asking for their, their consent. And me, you and I know that the house of worship are not immune to the crime and violence that occurs. And there's a lot of domestic spillover. And I know you talk about a case in only 2017 in California. I think it's Manuel um, Garcia, where he shot and killed his ex-girlfriend uh, and her new boyfriend in the church parking lot. I'd love to sort of get the backstory um, there, Hannah, as to what we might learn from that situation. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things about that particular story is the fact that that domestic violence spilled over into a public place, into the church's parking lot. And it's interesting because with that one, it was a month after she had already left. So it wasn't immediate. And that's part of the understanding when someone leaves, right? That's a, it's a super dangerous time period, both in the immediate, but also for several months following it. And this particular um, perpetrator had waited outside of the parking lot, knowing that that was where his, his wife would be that she was going to mass on Sunday. And so that was why he was waiting there, because it was a sure bet about her location. And I think that's an interesting thing for the church to understand is that it's patterned. People go to church on Sunday, usually at the same time to the same service. So it's an easy place for someone who may be stalking their ex-partner or maybe even their current partner to find to find them. It's going to be a particular part of their pattern that's that's traceable. So that's a good reason for the church to be on its guard, realizing that it's a good spot to ambush someone or for a confrontation to happen. Yeah, and particularly in this, what I like about this is 
Albeit it's very different around child custody, a lot of church parking lots across the US are used as that neutral drop-off point between the husband and the wife or husband, ex-wife or whatever, whatever it is. So, and I think my good friend Carl Chin, if I can get his statistics right, we'll need to go away and research this. But my mind is telling me it's something like 60% of uh, gun use within the church occur outside of worship hours. And it's a high percentage of those occur outside the church building, inside the parking lot. So again, even though this incident has happened domestically, the, the statistics and the story really spill over into so many different areas of sort of church life for sort of knowing and understanding risk and looking at ways as to how to sort of mitigate and manage. But, you know, our parking lots are just as um, vulnerable to crime as what the inside of our church is when we're a place of mass gathering. Yeah, absolutely. There was a, just the year before, there was also a shooting in a different church parking lot um, where an estranged husband confronted his wife outside of New Creation Assemblies of God Church and shot and killed her there as well. And she had also just left her husband due to domestic violence. So like you said, it's interesting because I think parking lots feel, um, they can feel isolated, they can feel empty, they can feel far away from other people, like a very easy place to go and confront someone. And and as a church, I think it's also our responsibility to realize our property is also part of the things that we should be protecting as soon as someone comes into our area they should feel safe. So how can we also try to mitigate risk during the week? How can we mitigate risk outside of the actual building? We maybe can't have security 24 hours a day, but can we set up cameras? Can we do things that might make someone, especially a victim, feel safer as they're pulling up to the church? Yeah, and I really hear it wider than um, what you're saying there, because I feel that, and again, this is just my experience as a Christian, my experience of working in safety and security in churches across the country, my, my mind is just drifting towards Simon, the sad victim in this case that was murdered by her ex-boyfriend, must have told someone within her circle. She must have at least told one person and perhaps told one person within the church that knew of the violence within her relationship, that knew of the sort of, um, that she is now in a new relationship, that knew that her ex-boyfriend wasn't taking it very well. There had to be one person somewhere um, all these stories of mass violence, it always comes out afterwards. You know, at first, no one saw the indicators, the warnings, the red flags, signs, whatever you want to call them. And then people start putting the pieces together. So when I say, I think it goes wider than what you said, Hannah, I, I think the church does have a responsibility to be asking the right questions, as you said, and, and, and be inquisitive about these and then start formulating plans. I don't want to start being really too robust against the listeners, but, but it is true. I think the, the questions need to be asked of these people. Quite often we're digging our heads in the sand, thinking these situations are going to resolve themselves. And most often they resolve themselves by an escalation of, of violence. Mm -hmm. And I think we also need to, uh, besides asking the right questions, we need to be talking about these issues or we're going to miss those signs because we're not familiar with them. So also having an awareness, having training in your leadership team so that someone who may be experiencing domestic violence in the home feels safe enough to come forward at the church and disclose what's going on to them, to the leadership team or to a support team or advocate so that you don't get blindsided when something happens. If their significant other does escalate or does decide to um, seek retribution at the church or on the church property, it's not something that you were totally unaware of because you've created a type of culture that is safe for victims. And then you follow it up with actions that create a physically safe environment. 
And I know one of the cases that you mentioned was around the First Baptist uh, shooting in 2017 in Sutherland Springs. And actually, I had I had the opportunity to get to know um, Frank Pomeroy, and actually he featured in an earlier episode of this podcast. If you haven't listened to that conversation, you might want to go back and listen to Frank Pomeroy. He was the pastor of First Baptist Church, Sutherland Springs, that had an active shooter at his church where 26 people lost their, lost their lives. But the interesting piece about that story is the perpetrator had a history of domestic violence in his background. And I know, Hannah, that's one of the things that your research has shown you that Domestic violence can be a sort of lead into uh, more severe and bigger crimes of violence. Yeah, absolutely. That case was interesting because the shooter had not only a history of domestic violence with his ex-wife and with their shared child, but also with his current wife at the time. He had been consistently threatening her mother via text message around not interfering with their relationship because she was concerned about the violence that was going on inside of it. And the church that he went and shot up, that was the the church that her family attended. And her grandmother was one of those 26 victims that did pass away. Um, her parents weren't at church that day. It is interesting. There's a very, very significant link between mass shootings and history of domestic violence or domestic violence related shootings. A really interesting study that had been done just this year in 2021 Um, was looking at all of the shootings between 2014 and 2019, mass shootings, and 60% of them were domestic violence related. And if you include someone who had a history of domestic violence, maybe the shooting wasn't motivated by DV, but they have a history of it, it goes up to 68% of shootings. That is an insane correlation. (laughs) It's not one that we can write off. And I think the reality is that someone who's willing to commit an act of physical violence in the home is going to have very little barrier to committing violence against a total stranger. It's also interesting because I think people who have a propensity towards physical domestic violence or who have committed physical domestic violence, a lot of it is done in moments of anger or when they feel out of control or they feel like they're losing a sense of power. They act out in that instance and they really don't care about the other person, right? They're just acting out for what feels good or right or just or powerful to them. And that can really easily spill over too into strangers. So that would be something like the parade in Wisconsin that just happened, the driver who swerved into the parade and and killed several people. He was fleeing a domestic violence incident and he was just pissed off. And so to him, it seemed totally rational to just, you know, go injure and kill a few people in a parade. So it's interesting because domestic violence just removes that internal barrier against harming another person. And that can really swiftly spread to other people or to the church building. And so when we look at domestic violence, Hannah, as the church, we're based on community, on faith, and we want to help these people, but we also know that they bring a great deal of risk into our house of worship that we need to try and mitigate in some way or best cases to manage. What would you say to a an administrator or a human rep- resources representative that might be listening to this or, or maybe a pastor or church leader that's listening to this thinking, well, what should I do? How do I acknowledge that domestic violence is real? How do I intersect my faith in wanting to help that victim and the offender bring them closer to Christ? You know, what would you want them to take away from your conversation? Yeah, I think that's a complex question. <laughs> <laughs> but take your time to answer. Yeah, take time. Um, I 
So one of the things that I did develop is a series of programs. I have three different training curriculums that are specifically created for church leadership teams around the issue of domestic violence, the types of practical actions that they can take to really help a victim and also to help a perpetrator and sort of balance this unique issue that we struggle with in the church between mercy and justice and between reconciliation and accountability and consequence. One of those is called Safety and Security 101. It's available on my website, houseoffaithandfreedom.org. And that one is really the tangibles around both church security, but also around the victim security and around the legal ramifications that can be a part of an issue like domestic violence. Um, And that can be a really practical way to start putting those theoretical concepts into practice in a useful manner. I asked you a complex question. You gave a very good answer there, Hannah. So we're going to keep working down the list. So next we're going to do safety leaders now. So if there's a safety leader, uh, maybe we'll say someone on a church security team that's listened to his podcast, what advice would you give to them around sort of domestic violence? What, what would you want them to take away from today's conversation? Definitely awareness that it's happening in your church and that domestic violence is a really large indicator for wider church violence. Um, Besides being aware of it, I would say asking those right questions, digging in and being aware, finding out about protection orders, custody issues, training your team on the particular difficulties that can come along with a domestic violence case so that when one does come up, you're not blindsided by it and you're not unprepared for it. And then the final one is the church community members. And I promise you that is the last bucket here. But I think if we hit all those, someone's going to come away with some great, great awareness. So if there's just someone in the congregation that either suspects, knows, believes that someone within their community is suffering from domestic violence, uh, what would you want them to take away from this conversation? What type of things should they be doing? I would say consider getting trained again. Um, I do have a curriculum called Victim Advocacy, and that one really goes into how can you support someone in your community directly as they're walking through the process of either realizing that they are in a violent relationship or if they've recently left it and they're walking that process of healing. I also think being really cautious around your own personal safety when you are helping someone who's in a violent situation, it can be really easy to want to instantly step in. But thinking through some of the complex issues, both for yourself and for that victim, that could be fallout if you go to try to do a confrontation or if you just sort of blindly walk into it, really taking the time to consider all of the different facets and and infusing that consent everywhere that you possibly can so that the victim knows that they have as much control of the situation as they can. Yeah, I really like that. And you said that throughout this conversation about infusing that consent, you know, letting the victim have the have the control and, and let them feel empowered because they're in a, a subservient position already where they already feel that um, they can't um, see the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, as to get themselves out of it. So infuse consent, asking the right questions, um, knowing that churches are a flashpoint for domestic violence because we help those that are broken. And you also mentioned that our last statistics of church shootings are actually connected to domestic violence. So it's been great to sit down, Hannah, and have this conversation with you. There's so much in there um, for people to uh, really digest and work out what does it look like in our house of worship. And I know that you have a free download which will help sort of people just go through some of the questions that we've, we've spoken about today and I'll leave that in the in the show notes. So Hannah, um, really appreciative of your time and thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. 
Thank you for listening to the Church Security Made Simple podcast. If you're looking for training on how to keep you and your church community safe, or if you're interested in working with me on my five-week group coaching program, please head over to worshipsecurity.org. And if you've enjoyed this podcast episode, don't forget to rate and review wherever you are listening. Now, I'll be back with you on the next episode, but until then, stay safe, have a blessed day, and remember, always plan, prepare, and protect your ministry.